The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 105. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Cooking for Comfort, my cookbook, is out and on Amazon. You can also visit culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort to see some fan photos of dishes they've made and read the introduction. When you get the book, you'll see I do use salt. That brings out flavor. I get my salt from Savory Spice. Shop the extensive selection and get the Mount Hood Toasted Onion Rub to marinate your steaks or add to your onion chip dip. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice to order today. Today my guest is me. Recently I was on Mike Meharry's Godarchy podcast to discuss me, liberty, food, how those combine, and, as it happens, I offer probably the best account of how I found my way into libertarian thinking. I've included some of Mike's intro to his audience because I think it's relevant to finding balance. I don't know more than you about how to find your way, but I like how Mike sees the world and I want to share that. Item last, this is episode one of season three. I read somewhere that most podcasts end by show seven. I'm a bit proud of this consistency. If you've been here from the start, thank you so much for being here. If you're new to the show, thank you for tuning in. There are two years of episodes to catch up on. Now then, here's Mike and me. You know, last uh, episode, I had Ron Paul as my guest, and that that creates a bit of a dilemma, because how do you follow up Ron Paul, right? How do you top? Ron Paul. I'm not sure you top Ron Paul. And why would you even try? I'm just going to do something completely different this week, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. We're going to talk about food. I mean, who doesn't like food, right? Who doesn't want to to eat? Talk about food. I'm going to be talking with Dan Reed. Dan uh, has worked as a professional chef. He's the host of the Culinary Libertarian podcast. He just published a book called Cooking for Comfort, One Pot Meals You Can Make, Uh, and that's a cookbook that he's released, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And we're going to weave a little bit of liberty into the conversation because we both share the same worldviews, but this is going to be a little bit of a lighter episode, and, and it was really cool the direction that the conversation took. I think you'll enjoy it. Dan is a Dan's a neat guy, and I think you'll really enjoy his perspective on things. Uh, but it's not like your typical episode. You know, it, it was interesting. I was talking to this guy the other day, and he had listened to a few episodes of the show, and he was like, "Mike, why do you call it Godarchy? I mean, you hardly ever talk about God," and. First off, I'm not sure that's completely true. I mean, if you go and look at the list of episodes, the vast majority are directly relating to Christianity and the intersection and um, intertwinedness of Christian thought and libertarian, voluntarist, anarchist philosophy. Uh, but it's true. Not every episode is you know, overtly Christian. I've done a number of episodes that are more 
political philosophy focused, but this one is really not even that so much, although you'll you'll find that woven in. But this is really more just about living life and cooking and eating and enjoying one of the wonderful blessings of life, and that is good food. And I was thinking about this the other day. Um, you know, American Christianity really tends to segment areas of life. Um, you know, it, like putting things in silos is the way I've heard it explained. We have different areas of life that don't tend to overlap. So we have our Christianity over here and we have our politics uh, maybe over here and we have our family relationships and they're kind of over there and then our recreational life is over there and, and, and we segment our lives into different sections. And I don't really think that's a healthy way to look at life. And it's interesting if you go back and look at Jewish thought and, and, of course, that's you know the the worldview that Christianity evolved out of. They took a very holistic view of life, where all things, good things came from God. Food comes from God. Fellowship comes from God. Um, all of these things are blessings in our lives, and we shouldn't look at our life as segment. We should live a holistic life where all of these various aspects weave together and and interlock. Um, Celtic Christianity really captured that type of spirit. And it partly came from the Irish background. They came from that kind of pantheistic druid where, where they kind of worship nature. And they and they held on to that worldview, but recognized that God was the Lord over all of it. And uh, so that's why I like to talk about things like this. I love music. I love cooking. I love food. And I think that it's important that we don't always get caught up in politics all of the time. And uh, Dan and I talk about this a little bit. You know, you, you get the people on online and, uh, you know, you post something about, like, I love sports and I'll post something about the Tampa Bay Lightning or a football game. And, you know, it, invariably you get some libertarian that comes in, oh, we're bread and circuses. And, you know, uh, why aren't you doing something important? Well, you know, I don't want to make my whole life about politics. I, I involve myself in politics and into political philosophy because I want to live free. Emphasis on live. I want to live my life. I want to have relationships with my family. I want to enjoy music and food and fellowship and all of the, the good things that we can have in life. And I want the government to get the hell out of the way so that I can live free and enjoy the life that I have. And uh, Dan, Dan and I will touch on that a little bit, too, about how government has even managed to mess up food. You know, government messes up everything it touches. So um, Dan, his his biography is kind of funny. He's, he says that his cooking career started with a failed attempt at cream puffs. And somehow he managed to parlay that into a career as a professional chef. He has worked under two master chefs. He has held positions both as head chef and head baker. Uh, he's worked in a number of environments, including hotels, restaurants. And uh, now he's doing the Culinary Libertarian podcast, which all of this stuff, I'll put links on the show notes page. But let's go ahead and bring Dan in. And I hope you do enjoy this conversation about delicious, yummy food. All right, I am here with Dan Reed. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. This is going to be fun. It is going to be fun. You have the dubious honor of being the episode after Ron Paul. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong in following Ron Paul. No, there's not. 
Although, so you could look at it two ways. It's like you have this tremendous act to follow. On the other hand, ostensibly, it should have generated some more interest in the show. So, you know, people should be tuning in. So we'll go with number well, two. Uh, of the two of us, <laughs> me and Ron Paul, one of us is going to be a bigger headliner than the other one. So I'm okay with that. That That's true. But then again, you're probably a better cook than Ron Paul. That's probably true. Although I'm not sure I want to go up against his wife. Well, yeah, that, that may be true. So you were known as the culinary libertarian, which I, I think am. is cool. And I'm, I'm first off, I'm just curious. Well, let me, let me back up a second and kind of tell you one of the, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is just, I'm tired of politics. And I think as well-rounded human beings, it's it's a good thing to talk about things that aren't necessarily all politics all the time. I mean, after all, life, you know, we do politics so that we can live life and we can enjoy the things of life. And food is certainly something that we can enjoy. So I'm curious how you decided, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to combine libertarian philosophy and my passion for cooking and baking. You know, I wish the answer to that was something brilliant and profound and life-altering. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> uh, the, the best answer to why I chose those two things as one, uh, Tom Woods is seemingly endlessly pushing people to start a blog. Right. And get your web page up, you know, yep. get traffic, get money. Well, all right, so I got the blog up. Um, we're waiting on the other two things to happen. <laughs> um, so it's it's a little Kevin Costner-ish. Build it and where is everybody? Right. So foolish me thought that if I'm getting the deal from Woods, that somehow libertarianism had to be in the thing. Right. I thought I owed him that. I didn't know I didn't. Right. So, so, but it was, I was at the time when, you know, several others have asked, when did this conversion happen? And truly, I have no idea. I sort of know how it came, where. So, well, when, when you choose cooking for a life, mm -hmm. you, the unseen is you choose to exclude everything else, <laughs> including family from your life wow. to focus on cooking. Now, if you're going to, if you, I don't Now, there's several levels of cooking. If you're the person who's making a family work and being the responsible parent by working at a, a chain restaurant, there's right. nothing wrong with honorable work. There's nothing wrong with doing an honest day's work. No, absolutely the not. kind of cooking I'm talking about is, is high end, mm -hmm. Really, you know, fine wine, fine food kind of restaurant where a weekly shift is 80 hours a week. Right. So politics, I don't care about politics. I'm chained to a stove. But politics are, why aren't you doing your job? Right. So a lot of the world passed me by. Yeah. And, you know, before that, I remember I was a kind of a Republican because Reagan came into office and – whether, you know, we've come to learn a few things about the Reagan administration, but he was 
a really good presenter. He spoke well. Oh, like, yeah. Wow. This guy is captivating. So I remembered that. It kind of came out of cooking, thinking Republican, and mm. then realized, well, this – this isn't really what I want. Democrats isn't really what I want. And so a very long progression of going from Hannity and Levin right. to Glenn Beck. And, and then I, you know, Hannity and Levin, like, okay, you guys got to go. Um, and Beck worked for a little while, but then it wasn't really cutting it anymore. Right. And somehow between listening to Beck, finding Milton Friedman and Phil Donahue, on a YouTube video. Oh yeah. Somehow I came to this guy Woods. And I well, all right, what why not? Let's listen and see what's what. And that's probably as accurate as an explanation of how I got into libertarian thinking as as I can come up with. And at the time there was a, there was a little bit going on in food, not too much. I think more now, or maybe I wasn't aware of it. But anyway, so the very long rambling answer to your question is the food part was there. The liberty part was coming, and there had to be a way to put them together. And, and there's still there – boy, there's lots of ways to put them together, more than I expected. Yeah. Well, so – I'll give you. I'll offer a couple of thoughts. First off, you know, interestingly, I also Woods was also a big part of my my political transition from kind of neocon right wing Republican to libertarian and cap. Uh, so we we share that in common. But I think what you're doing is important, and I think it's important because there is some. So you you've heard this before. Like if you okay Super Bowl Sunday, you post. On your Facebook page, hey, go my team who's in the Super Bowl. If you have any connection with the libertarian community at all, you know you're going to get the following comment. Why are you following that bread and circuses? You know, as if we can't do anything other than focus on politics all the time. So I think what you're doing is important in that you're bringing you're 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 bringing some roundedness to uh, our our little community, and I think that's a positive thing. Uh, you're you're supplying the bread for the bread and circuses, right? Well, it's fun. Yes, and I'm so I have two thoughts. One, as you're as you're making that funny voice. Which all of us hear when we read the comments. <laughs> yes, I'm thinking about the Milton. The uh, oh, now I've got forgotten his name. He's not. It's um, Morgan Freeman right. meme where he's pointing up and the words say, "He's right," you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly what happens. You can't even enjoy a sporting event without being chastised by somebody. The you know, one of the things I'm sort of finding a niche in my own little world, um, and part of it is with the recent interview I did coming out next week as we record this, is I, I learned the hard way, which meant going th researching the new terms. What What is opportunity cost? What does this mean? I don't understand what you guys are talking about. Right. And a lot of the a lot of the good, well, maybe even the bad ones, but a lot of the libertarian podcasts and a lot of the libertarian content talks about economics as if the listener or reader already knows what's going on. Uh, that's and, true. And I didn't. I had no idea. What do you, what do you mean? There's more than one kind of economic thinking? 
Right. I mean, what is this? London school, Chicago school? Where are these places? The Austrian school? What? So it took me, it, well, it's a continuing struggle to sort of sift through all this and figure out what are they saying? And it took a lot of reading from some fairly heavy hitters, mm-hmm. Rothbard, Mises, like, oh my God, yeah. I'm not ready for this. I'm just a cook. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I like doing on my show when we're not doing food, and we do food, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes we're going full on politics or or economics. Right. And I think the listeners that I have are first attracted to the culinary part because I have a lot of food episodes. I have a lot of just getting into here's how you make a soup. Here's what's going on in the pan. And there's a lot that there's a sort of a parallel that I'm occurring to me that for people who are interested in either making soup or making cake or making sourdough bread or understanding economics, there is a primer necessary to comprehend what you're reading or listening to right and the culinary part the baking the cakes and all that i can do that really easily mm-hmm. because i am just a ton of experience and and also have sort of recognized that a lot of cookbooks a, a recipe is the list of ingredients right nobody cares about that so what the real make or break part of a recipe is the procedure sure now, for professional cooks, the, the go-to authority for professional cooking is um, Auguste Escoffier's La Guide Culinaire. Now, he was a French chef, cooked for kings. But more than that, Escoffier was a food scientist. Uh-huh. And we had, so La Guide is some 5,000 or so recipes. What you don't know is that he spent 30 years of his life testing all of them to find out how to make them better. The Guide Culinary is just the end of all that work. Right. And the recipe reads, braise this in the usual manner. Uh, <laughs> hey, yeah, hang on a minute. Let me go find out what, <laughs> right. what does braise mean? What does the usual manner mean? So you have to go and get a year of experience to just come and make this recipe that says do this in the usual way. Right. Well, that's not a lot of help, but it's not targeted at the general audience. The cookbooks targeted at the general audience are not a lot better. Yeah. Well, put everything in the pan and cook till it's done. You know, I'm going to need a little bit more information here. So the podcast conveys the information. The new cookbook I wrote also in the procedure tells you, I believe, well, it doesn't tell you anything, explains how, boy, I'm getting stuck on my own language, explains how to, what to do next and when to do it. So a recipe that reads cook for two minutes, cook for two minutes on low, cook for two minutes on high. How do I know when it's done? Right. If you change that to cook the garlic until you smell the aroma, I don't care how long it takes. Once you smell the aroma, that's your clue. Do the next thing. Right. So that part's easy. The hard part, and I'm getting better at it because I'm finding people who are smarter than me, right. is how do you learn economics intuitively like cooking can be intuitive? Right. How do you learn about the – how do you go back and find ratification documents? Who do you, who has this? Well, right. turns out you have this. <laughs> I did. Turns out Karen Q has this. Yeah. Turns out there are people who have it. I'm finding them and saying, folks, 
this isn't really that hard. You don't need to be a constitutional lawyer. Right. You don't need to be Milton Friedman to understand basic stuff. And it can, yeah, it can be really complicated, like cook in the usual manner. It can be really complicated, like depreciation and interest and then compounded interest. Well, most of us don't care about that. We just want to know why is our paycheck the same, but they're buying less stuff. Right. That's what matters. That's important. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. The the kind of uh, uh, synergy is not the right word, but but the commonality between something like economics and something like cooking, you know, it, it, you know, and and we do people who are versed in economic terminology or or you know finance or investing throw around these terms, and your average person is like braze. What do you mean by braze? I don't. I, I honestly, I don't know what braze means. What does braze mean? See? Good question. <laughs> so, braise and stew are very similar. And in the world of cooking, there's a whole lot of opinion. And Oh, that sounds a lot the, like uh, libertarianism. <laughs> it does sound a lot like libertarianism. So, the significant difference is that stew is pretty much going to cover everything in the pan. Or pot. Right. Braise is going to come up not to the top of the meat. So let's say, let's, let's be very plain and specific. Let's say we're doing something that's called asubuco. Asubuco is an Italian word that only means bone with a hole. Mm -hmm. Classically, we go to the restaurant, we order asubuco, we get veal shank because there is one really good flavor in that shank. And the reason the shank has flavor, if you think about what a cow does, Cow walks a lot. Mm -hmm. Muscles that do a lot of work have a lot of collagen in them. Collagen is a kind of protein because the muscles doing work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's flavor. Now, it takes a lot of cooking, slow, long cooking, to break the collagen down to make that piece of meat tender. That's right. why asabuco is so yummy, but it takes a long time. So you're going to take, you're going to brown all of your vegetables in the usual manner, ha, 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 <laughs> sear the meat, add everything together, add your veal stock to that, so about halfway up, cover it, put it in the oven for hours. And when, when you put in a fork or toothpick and it literally falls off the bone or falls off the toothpick, you're done. So a tenderloin, which does no work at all, is automatically tender mm -hmm. and so there's you know people think tenderloin is the coup de gras of meat the best cut of meat on the whole thing get the chateaubriand and the big hunk 16 ounces of meat i find it insipid insipid is a fancy cook word for flavorless right it's boring to me interesting i think the delmonico as far as steak cuts goes it's got fat that means flavor. Mm -hmm. the, they did some work. So they, you know, well, these kinds of, so New York or Port, I don't care, Porthouse bores me. The Monaco is my favorite. Now, if we're going to go for pure meat flavor, and I'm really getting off track here, um, go to the bottom side of the cow, the skirt steak, mm -hmm. or some of those other things that we end up eating with that are cut really thin, like in enchiladas or in tacos, or usually it's Mexican food we think about when we get skirt steak. But man, oh man, talk about beef flavor. Yeah. <laughs> the reason it tastes good is because it's the abdomen. It did a lot of work. Yeah. Interesting. So your book, Cooking for Comfort, 
Yes. One pot meals. Which which is appealing to me, and I'm sure it is appealing to my wife, because it sounds like you can do it all without making a huge mess. So what was kind of the uh what was the impetus for the book? Well, I've been wanting to do something for well, a while, because let's go back to the Woods introduction to being a blogger in is also a way to have an income. Right. One of the ways you have an income is to sell other people's goods, sell other people's products or services, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a it's a whole other show, but it's called affiliate marketing. Right. And there's a thousand ways you can go learn that on YouTube, and ten thousand different people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. One of the other ways to earn an income is to make and sell your own product. Right. Well, a lot of the things people are making and selling is some kind of software. Well, I don't know anything about making software. I can't do that. That's right. (laughs) You're a cook, right? (laughs) Yeah. Make your software in the usual manner. (laughs) This ain't going to (laughs) happen. So. So food is something that I know. And I started getting these recipes together. So, you know, there's this. This is something that I can use as a way to – so what it became, first it was a list of recipes. The right. second thing, what it really became was a way to teach people who want to learn about cooking how to cook intuitively. Because mm-hmm. the, the, your stove and my stove aren't going to be the same. Your pan and my pan aren't going to be the same. So I can't tell you do this for three minutes and then do the next thing. There's no way I can have that information for everybody who reads the book. Right. And my, so what I do know is if your sense of smell works and your sense of hearing works, I can tell you what you're going to smell and what you're going to hear. Right. When those things happen, do the next step. Mm-hmm. So you don't need a clock. And that's the thing that – you know, as, as a chef, I've seen very, very skilled line cooks crumble at the idea of making a muffin. <laughs> Go make a biscuit. <laughs> Sorry, chef, all thumbs. There are some things people can't do. They get out of their comfort zone and they just, no, I refuse. I'm not doing it. I'm not making muffins. I'm not doing it. I'll clean the grill. Well, okay, I'll take that deal, but still. Right, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> so, there's there's things about new processes or are probably really misexplained processes that makes perfectly normal people seize up. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to find a way to get that seizing done. So and this is part of the, the um, podcast and the blog's purpose is to break through – Whatever the barrier is you have to show you that you can do the thing you want to do. Now, maybe we're not going to braise in the usual manner on step two. Right. But what we can do is let's start with something that's simple. And muffins are simple. Muffins don't even need the mixer. So let's do something that's simple. Let's understand why a muffin works. Right. Compared to a biscuit, they're very, very different in procedure and everything else. If we can get some basics down and you can succeed, now you have a level of confidence. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this in my children. Yeah. They have they they make stuff from beginning to end. I'm there watching. They think I'm helping them. I'm giving them more of anything else. I'm giving them emotional support by my presence. 
but they're doing the work. The other one just made gluten-free banana muffins by herself. Wow, yeah. You know, I put the butter on the stove to make it brown butter because the brown butter tastes good with the banana. Uh-huh. I wouldn't expect an eight-year-old to know what that means. Right. But she put it all together. She scooped them. She baked them. She made the streusel, put the streusel on. <laughs> yeah. Once you feel you can succeed with the thing, your confidence improves and you're willing to take on the next thing. And even if the next thing isn't quite what you want, you recognize you can do it. And so now it is, let's do the second thing again, recognizing, oh, I know what I did wrong. And this is how cooking becomes your skill, not mine. Right. You do the thing. Say, okay, I understand what happened. It's still edible. Everyone who eats it is going to love it because it tastes good. And I know I could have done something here to tweak it. So you do that the next time. Building skills in cooking or baking to succeed with more is really the purpose of the book. Yeah. And, you know, you think about it, that process applies to if that any any skill set, really, when you think about it. It's it's a different way of learning as opposed to having you know that that it, it really appeals to me because I'm a right brain thinker, so I'm I'm much more intuitive. I can't stand lists and 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 uh, you know steps, so I think that's pretty cool. I like it. Well, thank you. Well, it's it's intended to be because there's what I want people to do, whether they're listening to the podcast or buying the cookbook or cooking something off of the off the blog is. I, I want you to succeed with recipes I'm giving you. I don't want you to fail. How does that help me? Right. And then you're bringing a little bit of joy into life because, I mean, who doesn't like good food, right? Very few people. And then when we can make our own good food, that opens up a whole a whole new world. Let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. You know that dazed look you get when you keep staring at the store shelf, not seeing what you want and not recognizing what you see? Here's how to remedy that for wine. California Wine Club, the premier internet wine club, fixes that problem of glazed over staring at the wine shelves. California Wine Club members can shop wine selections from small vineyards. That's artisanal wine. Wine Club members can also ask wine questions of a wine consultant who will work with you to learn your preferences and flavor profiles. Membership in California Wine Club also includes the California Wine Club Guide called Uncorked, which offers tasting notes to the wines, pairing tips, and backstory for some of the vineyards. Membership starts with the Premier Series, and you can mix and match red or white wines and choose the frequency of delivery. California Wine Club subscriptions are also excellent gifts. And with the Wine Club Love It Guarantee, you can't go wrong. Click the banner on the show notes page or navigate to culinarylibertarian.com slash main to learn more about the Love It Guarantee and join the premier internet wine club. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash CAWineMain to make easy and informed choices about the wines you want to drink. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash CAWineMain or click the banner on the show notes page. Now let's get back into the show.
I want to pivot just a, a little bit and talk about something that I think you and I probably have some some common interest in in knowledge about. You know, as libertarians, we know the government messes up pretty much everything that it touches. Um, how has government messed up food? Oh, <laughs> it touched it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, well. The, uh, I suppose the apologists in the world are going to say that the things that happen, first of all, like anything else, like brazing in the usual method, uh, it, nothing happens that quickly. You have to have something going. You have to learn some steps. Oh, I think government, government actions are at some point, the very first one was some, uh, I'll give them their due, some possibly earnest attempt to fix a problem. Right. Good intentions. Uh, boy, and we know where that leads. Yes. So I, I think probably in most cases there was a legitimate good attempt to try to fix a problem, and the, and it didn't work. So – the, the and I, my timelines are off. And so one of <laughs> uh, we when we spoke before this, you liked, which is fine, uh, authenticity and spontaneity. So in keeping with authentic, I have no notes open. So we're, this is this is raw, baby. That's the way we that's the way we roll here on the Godarchy podcast. When when the USDA was started, the idea for the US it wasn't called that at first. Right. Then there's maybe one of my my corn show, my agriculture corn show is about that. Um, they were trying to fix some problems with farmers, mm -hmm. and but whatever the plan was, and this is more generic about government programs and plans than this particular one. Right. Usually. So they make a plan. Here's this new bill. This has become the law. Now this is going to address this problem. And then there's other problems that weren't addressed that existed before the bill was written mm -hmm. or new problems that exist after the bill was written. So now we have to write more law right. to fix these other problems that didn't exist until we fixed the first problem. So the very long, the very quick travel down the road is government interferes and harms food by trying to fix it and every problem the government made they think they have the solution for never realizing or probably caring little that the problem they're trying to fix was one that they caused in the first place yeah so <clears throat> the specific answer is the wholesome meat act back in 1967 i am familiar with this did yes you are did away with what we could kind of call, I, I hate fancy words, boutique and artisanal, because they weren't that. They were just Small, farmers right. doing what farmers do, raising crops and raising cattle and raising chickens and goats and sheep. Right. Did away with small butcher shops, butcheries, abattoirs, and condensed them into gargantuan megaliths of, of agriculture. So now, what is it, maybe five abattoirs for all the beef in the country mm -hmm. gee well if one of those goes down 20 percent of all the beef in the country is compromised right. gee what could go wrong so it gets the the problem with government and food is 
they just make more problems and they never fix anything. Yeah, the irony with the Wholesome Meat Act, you know, the of course, the idea is always safety, you know, and, and we all want to be safe. Uh, but I think in a lot of ways, they have actually made some food less safe by putting everything into one basket, so to speak, where you have a situation, you know, like you said, you, you have all of these uh, cattle processed in one plant. Uh, you get one bad cow, one, you know, small bit of uh, foodborne illness bacteria, and it taints, you know, like you said, 20% of the of the meat supply. Whereas if you have a more uh, decentralized system with small farmers, uh, you know, they're certainly just as prone to have a, a problem as any other, but it's going to be much lar- uh, a much smaller scale. So uh, you, you've taken a problem that is always going to exist and really increase the scale of it by, uh, you know, trying to to uh, micromanage uh, quote unquote food safety. So yeah, it's 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 a big mess and um, it's, it's difficult to do anything about. Now we are yeah, and you actually have a list of this on your website. I noticed of you know the the cottage food laws where we are starting to see at the state level. Uh, some some efforts to loosen up on regulation and whatnot, especially for you know folks that are cooking pies in their house or or whatever. And I think that's a positive step forward. It is a positive step forward, as far as I know. Every state allows cottage food industries, which is really not the right word to say, cottage food businesses because it's not an industry, uh, except for New Jersey. Hmm. Um, so, but even so, if your if your listeners are saying, "Oh man, I can go make a pie," hang on a minute. <laughs> Just because, so this is this is where libertarian lingo comes in. Just because your overlords allow you to make and sell things from your home doesn't mean you can make and sell anything from right. your home. Um, so there's a list uh, in Oregon because that's where I am. There's there's kind of two different sets of rules, loosely. Uh, either you from your home can go to a uh, like a flea market on the weekends and set up your your shop, your table, and have your things for sale, or you sell from your home. Uh, you might be able to say uh, you can't actually advertise your business, but you can say I have stuff for sale on social media. You are capped. Now, this is what's really kind of weird. The government, the state government in Oregon caps how much you're allowed to earn. And, of course, they're going to tax that. So why wouldn't they want you to earn more? <laughs> right. Make any sense, right? So um, so your, your income is capped as a cottage food business. If you're going to go to the flea market, you, your home kitchen has to be inspected. And so we're going to talk about this in one second. You have to be inspected for safety, and you cannot have pets that have access to the kitchen or, of course, have no pets. If you're just selling from your home to people driving up to your front door, you don't need to have the inspected kitchen. So it means you could have cats or dogs or guinea pigs or ferrets or whatever you got. So the... Idea of having your kitchen inspected for safety is perfectly fine. Again, who why, who is against safety? Why could this be a bad thing? Right. Well, so the first problem is that you're paying the state 
one, you pay the state involuntarily anyway, so now you're paying the state more sort of quasi-voluntarily because you want the inspection to give you permission to right. send to venue wares. So they have the either the blanket authority to say yes or no, you're allowed, and if you're not allowed, what do I have to do to fix this? Well, either kill the cat or get a better <laughs> kitchen. So there are there are actually private businesses that do restaurant inspections uh-huh. and they aren't this is and i've tried to find the answer to this and i still haven't found the satisfactory answer except it's the state writ large um they can come in and they actually do a superior job than the state health inspector and i've seen them in action uh-huh. i've seen the state inspector and the private inspector pretty much on, in, on one occasion they came on the same day oh wow <laughs> They didn't know that, and the differences between the two of them are astonishing. Because huh. one, the private one, you're paying for the service, right. so they're going to give you. You're paying anyway, but you're actually writing a check to the private company. But you're getting the service you're paying for. Right. You say, "I want you to look for all of these things in my commercial department store, grocery store, bakery," and they're going to. They're going to look for all of those things, right. and they're going to come up in all of those things. They don't have the power of the state behind them. So the state health inspector, who is overwhelmed because Charlie called out, and now Frank has to pick up Charlie's shifts as well as his own. Right, and it's just Charlie and Frank because they don't have enough money. They don't have enough money to hire Joe. Right, and you got to do the whole county, and there's 500 restaurants. You got to do them all in a month or in six months. They don't do that. They don't even come close yeah. to meeting the basic requirements. And when they come in, it's they have a hit list. They already know what they're going to go look at. They're going to look at the hand sinks. They're going to look here. They're going to look there. They're going to say, okay, you're fine. And they're going to go because they're overwhelmed with the restaurants to go visit. Mm-hmm. And they got to show their face. They've got to sign the piece of paper in the building because they got to get your signature on it. And then they're off to the next one. So between the two, the signed piece of paper from the state is supposed to give customers some sense of reassurance, but folks, I'm telling you, <laughs> I have been in these kitchens. Now, some of the kitchens are great. Some of the kitchens, let's just say they're less than great. Right. And having a private inspector who could come to your house who specializes in cottage food businesses, who knows what the what – the, this house was built in 1950. We There are things that can't be retrofitted. There's things that just can't be accomplished that the state would say, well, you have to have a new fan. You have to have a new hood. You have to bring gas from this side of the kitchen to that side of the kitchen. Stop it. Right. But this is just railing on the government, which is easy to do. Of course. Um, well, and, and you so, got, you hit on something I think is important or, or, or a key problem that we get with government solutions is that they tend to be one size fits all and there's no such thing as a one size fits all world. You know, I mean, every, every kitchen uh, is different. Every, you know, the, the needs of the business are different and therefore the, the priorities are going to be different. It's, it's like anything else in the world, but government tends to be because it has to have, you know, it has to have a list braise uh, in the standard way, <laughs> yeah, and and that's how everything is boiled down. And and we have this f- feeling of assurance because it has the state stamp of approval on it, but it's not necessarily any great thing um, 
because it is one size fits all. And that's, you know, that's always been my, my objection to centralizing power at the federal level as opposed to diversifying it at the state and local level is because you, one size fits all doesn't work for, for states either. Oregon's different than Florida, which is different than Alaska. Uh, and, and so this illustrates, I think, an important point <clears throat> where you, you get rules that are inflexible. And have to be applied in situations where they can't be applied, but they have to. So therefore, you're just SOL. Well, yes, that's absolutely the case. And and if if there is any shining light to be made, and I'm sorry, I'm going to bring politics in a wee little bit, the inability of overlords to effectively manage a virus you can't see, like trying to stop the wind, right. How do you write a law on a piece of paper that stops the wind from blowing? I don't know. You can write the words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can arm all the policemen. You can deputize everybody. But the wind is still going to blow because yeah. the wind is going to give you the big middle finger because right. it doesn't really listen to you. Right. So I, th- I think around the, you know, around the world, I think we're seeing resistance to the idea of overlords overlording. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. Here's a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Well, this has been fun. I'm going to let you go. Okay. But before we do that, I do want you to uh, let people know where to find the things that you want them to find. And of course, I will link to these things in the show notes page as well. But some people are auditory. So right. where's your stuff? Well, I'm going to give two links. So, and, and if you just take away the second part of the link, you'll find the main one. So the podcasts page is kind of the archive of all of the shows, mm-hmm. which is culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts. And just take off podcasts and you can go to the main page and mm-hmm. surf around. Uh, and then the cookbook page, because I've got some information there. And if you're interested in um, more than the look here part on the Amazon page, you can look at the introduction. I have the PDF there so you can read through and sort of get a sense of how do I explain to you what's going on? I think mm-hmm. the introduction is really good. Well, introduction to what you can expect. And that is culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort. Cool. And just, just to clarify now, it is a lot of soups. But the reason it's a lot, well, one, it's fall, so that's good. Right. Soups as, as a cooking tool, soups is a spectacular way to learn how to build flavor. Mm-hmm. And then you take your soup skills and then you turn them into a braise in the usual manner. <laughs> and the same, same ideas apply. Uh, it's not all soup. There's a couple of uh, whole muscle meats. There's some roast pork or roast mm-hmm. turkey, roast chicken. Um, and then also under the recipes, it indicates – is it omnivore? Is it vegan? Is it vegetarian? Mm-hmm. So, and then you can 
you can manipulate those. If it's a carnivore, you can change out the sausage for seitan if you want to. There's ways to adapt to your own dietary needs, mm-hmm. but I also make it easy for you because it says so right there. Nice. I love your website, by the way. It's it's uh, well, thank you. It's it's very nice, and you got this big chunk of bread in the front, and I keep <laughs> looking at it, thinking I'd like to slice it, slather some butter on it, and uh, go to town. Yeah, well, we should do that. And so, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not going to derail your show, but there's a big movement for raw butter going on. That's that's cool. I imagine it's probably synergist with the raw milk. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is an issue that we have worked with with the 10th Amendment Center for a number of years. So, Well, again, I appreciate talking to you. It's been fun. This is the hungriest episode ever of the Godarchy podcast, and uh, you've done a fantastic job of of bringing a lot of uh, threads of thought together. So it's it's been enjoyable, and I really do appreciate your time. Well, wonderful. I appreciate the compliment. It's nice to hear positive feedback. (laughs) Well, you're more than welcome, and we will – get this out and we will put your links on the show notes page and hopefully folks will get your cookbook and start making delicious food for their family. I hope so too. All right. Well, you take care. Thank you very much, Mike. All right. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put a link to Mike's Gardarchy podcast page on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 105. I'll also add the link to the Cooking for Comfort blog post with the PDF link to read the introduction, as well as a link to order the book. Christmas is coming. Yes, yes, I know I said that. And that book would make a great gift for the eager cook in your life, who also might be you. If you find value from the show, I would appreciate your support at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. I have a Liberty Classroom banner and a McClanahan Academy banner Those are affiliates, but they also offer great products. There's also a Patreon and a PayPal tab. Please share the show on social media to your friends, like the show on social media, and leave a rating and a review on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.